Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Something magical happened to me earlier this year. My name appeared associated with a piece of officially licensed Star Trek for the very first time. It took the form of a book, a novel, and very appropriately, a Strange New Worlds novel, a piece of tie-in fiction to the hit streaming show on Paramount+. The book, titled The High Country, was written by New York Times best-selling author John Jackson Miller. And the reason why my name appears in it is because I was one of many technical advisors that John turned to while developing his story, including a particle physicist, an equestrian, and a fishing expert. Now, here's the funny thing about this whole story. I had no idea that I was consulting for this book when I was actually consulting for this book. You see, I had John as a guest on this podcast two years ago to talk about a pair of his Star Trek Discovery novels. Those were episodes 110 and 111 of Strange New Worlds, in case you're interested. And after our chat, John started to ask me some questions about planetary science. How do planetary magnetic fields work and aurorae, things like that. I just thought that these were innocent questions asked out of curiosity, but in reality, this was secretly for the high country. About a year later, I stopped by John's booth at the Star Trek Mission Chicago convention to pick up a copy of Rogue Elements, his Picard novel. Mission Chicago was the convention where the high country was officially announced to a cheering crowd of Trekkies. Finally, John could freely talk about his Strange New Worlds book. At his booth, he told me what those questions from a year ago were really about. He then asked if I had a second to spare to talk about planetary rotation and atmospheric circulation, and so we sat down and sketched some diagrams using the Sharpie that he had just used to sign a copy of Rogue Elements for me. And now, a year after that, The High Country is in print, and John Jackson Miller is back on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Now, before we jump to warp, I gotta issue a red alert. We will be spoiling major themes from this novel, so if you haven't done so yet, I highly encourage you to go to your local bookstore or library and pick up a copy of The High Country before proceeding. Ready? Hit it! John Jackson Miller, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Happy to be here, and uh, there's a nice coincidence in that name, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Right. We're here to talk about your latest Star Trek novel, which is a Star Trek Strange New Worlds novel called The High Country. I've got my hard copy right here, signed, and and you've got yours as well. Um, Before we dive into your novel, I'd like to ask you about Strange New Worlds, the streaming show, both as a fan of Star Trek and as a Star Trek novelist. What were your impressions of Star Trek Strange New Worlds season one? 
Well, I had already sort of written a proto-Strange New Worlds novel, because we had the Star Trek Discovery book, The Enterprise War. And so I had already gotten acquainted with Christopher Mount, uh, or Anson Mount as Christopher Pike, and the new Spock, and the new number one, and, and everybody else. Obviously, you know, it was uh, a huge hit. You know, rather infamously, when we were deciding what to put on the cover of The Enterprise War, you know, Anson Mount had not appeared yet on TV. <laughs> And so I said, look, we, you know, nobody's going to recognize this person. Uh, I'm sure he's great, but let's go <laughs> ahead and just put the Enterprise on the cover because that's universal and people will know what that is. And of course, by the time the book is, is ready to go to press, you know, the entire first season or rather the second season of Discovery is, is done. And, you know, it's a hit and everybody is clamoring for Strange New Worlds and they're clamoring for, for more Anson Mount. And it, it is uh, sort of funny that, all of the reprints of uh, Enterprise War in other countries, the German cover has him on the cover. <laughs> Every, huh. bas basically, everybody else who knew, you know, what what the show would be about or, or, or what uh, kind of a, an actor he was and the kind of portrayal he was doing, everybody who had that experience understood immediately what to put on the cover of the book. And so I've been sort of lobbying to... If not, get the book, you know, because the book continues in print. It gets reprinted. I, I, and I understand it might not be easy to relabel it as a Star Trek Strange New Worlds book, but let's at least get the cast on the cover is what I like to do. Uh, and, and again, you know, seeing the show, I knew what was going to happen in the first season, having worked with Kirsten Beyer, uh, as we do on the streaming series. Kirsten is an executive producer on the show. You know, I sort of knew what to expect, but again, actually seeing all the technology, seeing all the uh, special effects and everything, and seeing the actors playing out these roles, you know, that's a big deal. And, you know, I uh, was initially discussing what we would put in the book with Kirsten and when we would set it. And I had said, well, I, I can put it between season one and season two or or here or there. I didn't want to do a prequel because I knew Enterprise War, in a sense, was already a prequel. And Kirsten said, well, we have this character, this actor who has just done a spe spectacular job. Bruce Horak is Hemmer, the uh, engineer, chief engineer of the series. Uh, you know, she said, you know, when you see him, you'll realize he needs to be in this book. And I agreed, although what that did is that determined that the novel had to take place during the first season because it has to be before... Hemmer enters and, uh, or after Hemmer enters and, and before he exits. One of the delightful things is that uh, a fan uh, of mine in Canada is an acquaintance of his and uh, was able to get a copy of the novel. Uh, and, and Bruce also already had the audiobook that he was listening to. And uh, yeah, so he, he was able to you know, do a photo of him with the, the book. And that was terrific. And a little endorsement there. So I enjoyed being able to yeah, sort of be the first to elaborate on this part of the the franchise. Um, it took longer than anyone expected for the book to come out because of very earthly matters. We had announced it at Star Trek Mission Chicago uh, in early April of 2022, and that's when you and I uh, were discussing it there. And mm -hmm. the very next week, I was at a convention in Indianapolis, and I got a message saying that because of the supply chain crisis, remember that, <laughs> all of the books before mine weren't able to get paper. 
And uh, so in order to reserve what they needed, they were going to push everything forward three months, which took Strange New Worlds, which at that point I had just finished. It took that novel out of a Christmas release time frame and it put it in the dead of winter in, in 2023. And so I was not happy about that. I, I should, should say, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, I then realized that something that had been on my wish list uh, would be possible, which is that I had designed this planet for this book. And, and at this point it's probably worth mentioning that you uh, and I discussed back and forth various possible uh, planets that I, I, I was considering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would have questions about, you know, I, I think I originally thought about doing a super earth or, or something like that. And I had a variety of questions about how, how certain things would, would function on the planet. But, uh, but as a, re- a consequence of the narrative of the novel, the novel has this big quest in it that goes cross country quite some distance and so I needed to know a number of things, like where things were relative to one another, and, and then things like uh, you know my ocean currents and things like that. I wanted to, I wanted to try to you know reflect that because there's a there's a maritime element to the novel as well. So I said, well, we've got three extra months here. Let's put the maps in the book, mm. and uh, that ended up happening. I got the permission to at least pursue it. Then managed to, with the help of my my friend uh, James Mishler, who is a, a game designer, who he does a lot of maps for a lot of uh, a lot of uh, different franchises. We discussed taking, you know, I, I had just many many scraps of maps, and I needed to get it down into what we had in the book, which is just five maps, three of which connected, uh, and we made it happen. And we even made it happen that uh, the maps are available to the audiobook listeners because. There is a supplemental PDF, uh, which is available when somebody uh, downloads the uh, the book. So uh, I'm really happy about that. And it uh, really you know, it was a case of making lemonade out of that situation. I've read over 100 Star Trek novels. I think this is the first one I've ever read that has maps in it. Um, maybe yeah. it's the first one ever that has had maps. It is not. There's the Deep Space Nine novel, A Stitch in Time, uh, 2000, okay. actually has maps of the Cardassian capital city. Ah. And it's. I think it's like two pages in the entire book. And so, yeah, that's really the first one. But we've got more. <laughs> Certainly ours are the first area maps. And it's important to note that because of the nature of the story that I'm telling, these are not the maps that you would uh, get from uh, from Enterprise. They're not orbital maps. They're not relief maps of the planet or anything like that. These are the maps from the perspective of the people on the planet, you know, whose libraries they're rating. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what one of the map is drawn for Captain Pike, my little girl. You know, we're talking the science of Star Trek here. That mm-hmm. There is a major scientific thing going on on this planet, and it defines and shapes all the action which is that our crew is uh, is crash landed on this planet where not only does starfleet technology not work but pretty much anything uh, electrical doesn't work either and figuring out the hows and the whys and the wherefores of that is one of the things that both I had to do and also the crew uh, in the book they had to figure out what was going on and why 
Right. So let's turn to that. So you call it the baffle, which is this special feature of the planet that keeps any electronic devices from operating on it or within a certain vicinity of it. On page 322 of the book, you invoke the Randall Sundrum model in which gravity could leak into extra dimensions, explaining why it's such a weak force of all of the fundamental forces we know of. And with the baffle, you essentially invoke the same thing for electromagnetic fields. So tell me about this cool connection to a real theory in modern physics. All right. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell a book that was um, not a steampunk novel, but a, you know you might call it a horse punk or cattle punk or something like that novel. Uh, <laughs> I guess cattle punk is a role-playing game. But yeah, I wanted, I wanted to do something where Starfleet technology doesn't work. We're trapped with 19th century tech. And also the people on the planet for a unrelated reason have a fear of fire. So this takes steam out of the equation. And we'll get into the whys and the wherefores of that in a, in a minute. Uh, but the notion was that Enterprise's shuttle was going to get close enough to the planet that basically everything rebooted. It's not that it all stopped working entirely, but you know, one of the nice little things they gave us is the transtator. The, the transtator, as we know from my last book and also a piece of the action, is a thingamajig that is the basis of all Starfleet technology. And I love hearing that because that means that's something that nobody knows how it works that I can mess with. <laughs> so I, I said, okay, here's what happens. If the Enterprise or its shuttles get close to the planet, it doesn't uh, it completely make everything stop working forever, but it, it at least keeps them from getting any closer to the planet. And if you get too close, your shuttle crashes and you end up in a situation like our characters are in. They're spread everywhere across the planet. And they're immediately confronting this situation where this planet is a patchwork of pre-industrial societies. And with this, I was trying to do something like I did with that, that previous book, Rogue Elements, where I, I took the notion of the piece of the action episode, you know, the 1930s episode, and I wanted to do something that basically elaborated on the idea of cultural contamination and what would happen to the mobsters of the mobster planet a hundred years from now. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a book that is sort of putting a spin on a subgenre of, of Star Trek stories that have to do with displaced populations, you know, kidnapped peoples. And there have been a lot of them over the course of Star Trek you know, there's a uh, the New Eden episode of, of Discovery. That is a place where Pike encountered this. But then also, you know, there was something in the past that I could use, which is the Enterprise episode, the North Star, which was about, uh, you know, these guys in the Old West. And I, I, I looked at that episode and I realized in order for them to have a functioning society, they didn't just steal the people. They stole the livestock. They stole the buildings. They stole the tools. They stole a lot. They had to have had a tremendous transporter to take all this stuff away. And I said to myself, well, what if the story that we know in that episode is not true, that they were taken away to, to be uh, enslaved workers on a planet that just happened to look like the old West or not, or, you know, that, that suited, suited their skills. That always seemed to be almost impossible to me because why would somebody do that? Why would you expend the energy to cross the galaxy just to get 
some uh, some you know farm hands. <laughs> it di- it didn't work for me. Right. And so even though my job is not to fix episodes or anything like that, I said, well, what if we look at this episode at a different angle and say, okay, maybe this was never about enslaving every anybody. That was that was a mistranslation or something like that. What if this was a benevolent situation where this alien culture goes around rescuing people that are about to be hit by tornadoes or tidal waves or earthquakes or volcanoes or or terrible things, people that are not going to be missed and allows them to basically create you know a planetary, I don't want to say zoo, but a, a, a planetary preserve for these pre-industrial cultures. And it just happens to be on this planet or doesn't just happen to be it struck me, why would you want people who have this particular technology level? Well, they would be best suited to be on this planet where because of a feature of the planet, nothing works. Nothing electrical really works. So I, so I said, okay, this, this is good. So I want to do a story where the people who are the, uh, the conservators who came up with this notion, you know, they have placed all these folks here who are from these, these, pre-industrial timeframes on other planets. And what they're doing is they're sort of cultivating their garden. You know, I have a, I have a section in uh, or a discussion in the book where Pike and, uh, and the conservator general are talking about bonsai trees and they're talking about the notion of, okay, how do we have a sort of mini civilization on this planet and allow it to sort of stay what it was and not get uh, corrupted by either the other cultures on the planet or the advance of technology. And of course, the answer is they've got this, uh, you know, this, uh, this not necessarily religion, but they are, they, they sort of cultivate this ethos that says, you know, anything that uh, you do to sort of try to advance or improve on your current level of technology is bad. It is bad. It is, you know, it's sort of a hyper environmentalist notion that you kind of have to remain at this level, almost like you know, stuck in amber, because you can't control what's going to happen to you in the future. You can't control what you're going to do to the planet. And the Skagarans, the people behind this, have a motive for this because their planet was destroyed by their own industrialization. And so their notion is, let's try and keep this, this, this right. The problem is, as we get into in the book, even though this society works for a lot of people, it doesn't work for everybody. And uh, this allowed me to get into something that, you know, Kirsten had suggested is, you know, maybe we do a utopia story where the utopia is working for some folks, but not everybody. It also allowed me to reflect on something that even, uh, you know, uh, one of the actors of the series, Anson Mount had talked on, on Twitter about just once he'd like to see a, a utopian story where everything isn't like menacing and bad from the beginning. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I, this is, this is something where these people all have benevolent intentions. It's just that the model that they've developed for their society just can't work. It's too complicated. It requires controlling what people are buying and selling and trading and what people are building in, you know, in secret in their houses and everything else. So I have all these notions here and I needed something technological to actually explain it. And I, I already at, at this point had the notion of the fire elementals, the Sari, as we call them in the book, and that they were connected in some way, shape or form to 
this mechanism which was present on the planet and which we learn is generating the baffle. The way that I got into specifically how it was going to work, I had left the scientific explanation more or less to the end. <laughs> and and uh, it just so happened that I was at that point in the book when I went to Mid-SouthCon in Memphis. This is like three weeks before the announcement of the book. So we're really close to the end. And I met Don Lincoln, who is he's a senior scientist at Fermilab. Uh, he was part of the team that discovered the Higgs boson. Uh, he's just done lots of, of different things. And more or less over lunch, I, I said, okay, <laughs> here's what I need to have. <laughs> I need to make electricity not work, but only within a certain boundary. You know, electrochemical reactions must still work in the sense that, you know, biological functions cannot be impaired. And then also at the same time, it needs to be set up so that the electromagnetic field of the or the magnetic field of the planet would still work because otherwise everybody dies. Right. And so these devices, the rongers, which are positioned on the planet, they are basically creating this envelope. And what's happening in this envelope is limited to the surface of the planet plus uh, some some height but it doesn't go all the way up to the ionosphere. It doesn't go all the way up to the magnetic field of the planet, but it also must still you know, prevent Enterprise from approaching. And so this is quite an ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dr. Lincoln said, well, uh, there's a couple of ways to do it. You know, you wanna, you're trying to increase resistance everywhere, but only do it uh, on, a certain, on a certain level. And, and what he suggested is, you know, you could do something with dimensions and anybody in Star Trek loves to hear about dimensions because dimensions are sort of, hey, that's great. <laughs> and, he, and he discussed this theory by uh, Lisa Randall and Raman Sundram. They developed a theory, I think, in the 90s that suggested that maybe the reason that gravity is, I think that's what it was, that gravity is a weaker force right. in our universe is that it's leaking somewhere. Uh, that it is leaking not into not into additional dimensions that are vast and universe sized or whatever, but are are smaller smaller dimensions. Mm-hmm. And he said maybe you've got something here where you've got electricity uh, or, or elect- electromagnetic uh, you know, force is leaking out of the system, and it's only doing so within certain bounds, so that people still work, but your cell phone doesn't. Yeah. And it's also only within this envelope. You know, I remember I, I trapped him in the parking lot as we were all going to the airport. I said, <laughs> Wait, I, I also have this problem that I need the Enterprise to have to keep away. And he said, well, this you could do something where this particular effect can expand for like a millisecond or something like that uh, randomly and leak out into the solar system. This would have two purposes. One it would allow me to reboot everything on the shuttles and reboot everything on the Enterprise and everything. So it's not actually completely taking them down permanently, but also because it is a momentary thing, that does not allow your cosmic rays and everything else to get through because you still have a, a magnetic field around the planet. It's just, a, it's just a very brief flash, flash, flash. And you know the, the way I sort of wink at this throughout this book is there are aurora uh, or aurori that are visible in the daytime. Mm-hmm. 
we just had the, the Northern Lights here visible at, at my place in Wisconsin last week. Oh, wow. I found out it's almost impossible to get a photograph of them, but it, you know, it's, it's uh, at least with my skills. But I was thinking, okay, well, this is cool because they're already in a nebula, uh, it was my intention. And I've got Aurora as well. And then I have these fire creatures as well who are sort of mixed into this whole thing. And, and part of the book is figuring out, well, how do the fire creatures fit into it? My intention was always that the fire creatures, the these elementals, the Sari, they had created the Rongers that were creating the baffle and uh, that they were doing it for a reason. You know, the notion is that in their dimension, they are suffering from a loss or there's, there's just a drought of electrical energy in their dimension. And the notion is simply that they create a device that manifests in our reality as these, these rongers, which are basically uh, they're creating the, the, the baffle and they're causing the energy within the baffle to leak back into their dimension. And then the other thing that the other element with them is that the control system by which they expand and, and contract it takes place on a mental level and it ends up being hijacked by our villains in this book to both run their society. And as we get to the, the, the great danger of the book, you know, they realize they have the ability to expand the radius of this effect. And of course, as our crew knows, if you expand the radius of this effect, you kill everybody on the planet. Because of those intense solar storms that were creating the aurora, right? So there was like that clue in there from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all it's all there, and we give you other hints as well that that something is going on on this planet. There are there are thunderstorms that just sort of fizzle out. Lightning right, lightning yeah. doesn't actually get going, and so you know my my view was basically you know up through the troposphere, this is mm-hmm. still functioning. Uh, this this baffle. Uh, because it's not like all you had to do is fly over a certain elevation because we do have aircraft uh, uh, or balloons rather. You know, it's, it's not that you could just fly all the way up there. You know, the high country as a title, which I actually started with as a title before I knew what the book was about. It has a nice Western sound to it. <laughs> you know, the, the notion is that the nodal ronger, as I call it, the, the one that, that controls everything is the one that is at the highest elevation. And, you know, once you, interface with it mentally, you can turn it on, turn it off, do whatever you want with it. It's just that the Sari are not aware of, um, you know, when they're sort of connected to the system, uh, it allows the Skagarans to control them and to drive them to destroy technical things on the planet. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a whole lot of moving parts to this thing, (laughs) but... And it required uh, a number of disciplines to think about. As Dr. Lincoln said, you know, this whole thing about the baffle uh, and how I've described it, he said, he said, you know, a, a real particle physicist would tear it apart in a second, uh, <laughs> but it's probably going to be good enough for Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in the case of when I was discussing with you, one of the things that, it, that survived from my very, very first thinking about this, I eventually knew that it could not be a super earth because I needed to be able to transit multiple climate zones in the course of this book, and I only had a month. And so by that point, uh, when I was speaking with you uh, uh, later, it was, well, one of the things that I kept from the beginning was that 
the planet would be uh, rotating in retrograde mm-hmm. uh, just because it's fun. Yep. This is a story uh, that is sort of a Western, but we're going from West to East. <laughs> uh, you know, Pike is literally bringing people out of the old West uh, with him to, uh, to, to the future. So I wanted them to be going East, but then also I, I had this notion that our years would be short and our, our days would be shorter. And the shorter days I think is something that, you know, when I was discussing it with you, one of the things I knew I needed, I need I needed the the ocean currents to go east. And the problem is I was also going to be near the ice caps. And so I I was concerned about that. And you you had said, well, if you if you get the planet spinning faster, uh, like uh, instead of twenty four hour days, I think I had like eighteen or twenty hour days in this. Mm-hmm. You had said, well, you can have counter gyres going on. Uh, actions going the other direction, and so so now winds taking us to the east, current taking us to the east. That works again uh, it, it, for where they happen to be on the planet. And again, does anybody really need that? No, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the Klingon language. You know, I try to I try to at least have the characters acknowledge these things mm-hmm. to show that they are scientists, they are thinking about stuff. And one of the other fun things about this book is. Because of all of the you know world building that's here, there's a lot of other stuff, a lot of other sciences that I got to dig into. My friend Beth Canan is a bloodstock expert, equestrian, and she advised me on uh, my Kenobi novel years ago because we were trying to figure out what would the parts of a saddle be for a dewback. That's the big lizard thing, and she had come up with the parts of the saddle names. But in this, we had actual horses and. I realized, okay, well, we only have uh, a certain amount of biodiversity on this planet coming from Earth. And one of the things that I decided would be the case is that while the Skagarans would frown on genetics as a science, they would accept uh, husbandry. They would accept what had been done in the past. The people in 1850s Colorado which is the group that are, is transported here, they would have known fully well about breeding horses and breeding dogs and horticulture. They would have known all these things and these skills would have been okay for them to use. And so, you know, we get into things like, well, how many, uh, how many horses are there? Well, there would be skadillions of horses. They would be everywhere. And that's one of the, one of the things that they're trying to actually regulate on the planet is that the horses are, you know, basically every single species on this planet is an invasive species. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of the one, the one native uh, uh, group. And so horses are everywhere and they have to be controlled. And, you know, we have a character, uh, Solarius in the book, who's, your job is basically he's it's not his only job he's he's uh, he's got an important role but but you know he's really going around trying to uh, make sure that the, this this level of procreation does not continue in all of the different species on this planet because it is this balancing act and so you know she suggested what would have been the breeds uh, of horse that would have been out in you know basically what would have been the Kansas territory but eastern colorado uh, in eight, in the 1850s, and what they would be able to do in terms of using breeding to tease the original traits 
of other breeds out of the existing horses, they would have known that. They would have known what they had really well. So if you know that there's one quarter Appaloosa over here and there's uh, at the beginning years and years and years ago, they would have tried to preserve those traits somehow. Where we realize it gets much more difficult is with the dogs because they didn't kidnap as many dogs. Uh, And uh, the cats, as it turns out, they just take off into the forest and and now there's places people won't go because the cats have taken over everything. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I, and, and what I did is I, I, I wanted to create these problems for managing this planet that would be multiplied, uh, you know, more than a dozen fold because there are other groups of people that they brought in here. And I also wanted to sort of show the sort of haphazard thinking that went into some of this because it's not like they spent an enormous amount of time studying what they got. So the HMS Thunderer, uh, which is a real ship, which really did vanish or probably founder in the Caribbean during uh, the hurricanes in the uh, late 1870s and really was carrying Captain Cook's son. It's implied that the ship and crew and everybody are among the abducted people. But the problem is they end up uh, realizing, uh, oh gosh, we just got a bunch of men here. <laughs> so yeah. this, this did, did, didn't work exactly uh, as they intended. You know, the, the book is the longest that I've done, uh, slightly longer than Rogue Elements, in part because there are just all these these fun things that that you can think about. You know, I even talked with, uh, you know, with a guy running a local bait and tackle shop about how fishing ties, how lures we're, we're all different and it ends up being a proof that there's actually, you know, a manufacturing interest on this planet uh, using machinery. So again, all these fun moments, I toyed for a while because I, because I did, I, I did talk to uh, the folks that do the role-playing game and mm. I said, you know, you could very easily make a role-playing game supplement for this. And I, I didn't, I don't know what happened with this where I don't know if they didn't have the rights or, well, certainly I didn't have time. Uh, but we didn't we didn't go forward with it. But it strikes me that, you know, this is just a very uh, interesting thought experiment, this setting. It is not something where, you know, a steampunk solution is going to be what's going to get you from here to there. But also, you know, how technology and science can be, uh, you know, restrained or tied back like bonsai. How you can prevent the flowering and the growth of these things. Uh, it is no mistake uh, that... You know, uh, Draco, you know, who's sort of our, our villain in the book, is shown to be a gardener. He's inherited this project. He's not really thrilled about it at this point, but he's inherited this project uh, after a thousand years. And he's trying to keep it together. And it's just very difficult to do. Thank you for basically answering all of my questions in one answer. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to ask you about the equestrian uh, advisor and about the, all, yeah. you know all of this stuff. I, I love how you are sourcing all of this expertise to sprinkle in the book to make it feel so real, so very Star Trek, right? Because you know what yeah. would Spock be doing down there except to try to understand this mysterious physical force that is leaking uh, electromagnetic energy into extra dimensions, um, and obviously we'll tie it back to the random 
Randall Sundrum theorem. Uh, it's it's also so great. Um, I did want to ask you about this tension between living in harmony with nature and the drive yeah. to innovate and increase in technology. So I love what you've done with the Skagarans, rewriting yeah. their history. Right? It makes sense that if you can build yeah. capable ships to uh, go and take people from other planets, you wouldn't take them as slaves, right? Because you would have technology that would be able to do that yeah. uh, manual labor uh, for yourself. So what they're doing is they're trying to, like you said, put together this idyllic planet where everybody is living in a pre-industrial society in harmony with their world. But then we get these people who want to actually do some technological innovation. They call themselves the menders. They do it in secret in their houses. So it's when I read the book, it was this sort of beautiful critique or commentary on this tension between living in harmony with nature and striving for more technologically. And I was wondering what, whether you viewed it that way as the writer. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Every other chapter pretty much is with Pike. And Pike is with the humans of, of what had been called the dry river Colorado community which in in our in our story is Havenbrook. Uh, every one of these towns that the humans are in from the old west you know, has sort of a, a old retirement home sort of name to it. So it's you know, Happy Valley, uh, Pleasant Ridge. The idea is that this is like an Epcot Center planet wide experiment here, where you know uh, uh, it's patchwork world, you know, a clump here, clump there. And um, I knew that it couldn't be a society that was going to work for everyone. And I knew that if I was going to drop Pike into somebody's lap, it needed to be somebody who was going to be completely at odds with the mission of the people that were running the place. Uh, And that's Joe McGee, who is a sort of failed inventor, failed everything, really. And his daughter, Jenny, who, um, even though, uh, you know, she is more realistic than her father is, it's very clear that she doesn't want to, you know, be stuck just uh, running a, a mill forever. And there's just nowhere for her to go. Uh, the educational system here more or less ends at age 10 hmm. because everybody's got everything they need. And there's, there's, there's all these, you know, this mountain of regulations, which they don't actually really give anybody it, but it's, it's all these ad hoc decisions of you can't have this. You can't have that. You can't have this. You can't have that because it might accidentally lead to advancement. And what I wanted to do was show the ways they would twist themselves up into knots. Uh, like there's, uh, there's, I think, offset printing comes up with the uh, journalist. And again, all he has is the printing press that came from Colorado. But through the diaries of the people that have, have been you know, the newspaper men in the past, he knows that there are other kinds of printing presses and were other kinds of printing presses when they got abducted from Colorado, they just weren't in the city. They just weren't in the village. They There weren't samples of it. And so that was a case where technology that would have existed at the time that they left, it just wasn't physically there yet. And so you've got these folks going, now, wait a minute, this is not really cool. Just because Babbage's computing machine was not in my village when you took us away, when you rescued us, uh, why can't I have it? And then, of course, there's the other element that I had, which was I wanted to show that, uh, and through the menders, and the menders are perfect for this, I wanted to show technology sort of trying to reach forward through them. And some of the things they came up with were not good ideas. And some of the things that they came up with 
are are decent ideas. There's a carriage that is air conditioned, and it's simply a matter of they've they've hooked the gears up to the wheels, and uh, it's generating a fan in the uh, in the uh, in the actual carriage. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a pretty good idea. Why didn't they do it uh, yeah. in these carriages, particularly that have windows? Why didn't that happen? Well, there wasn't a specimen of it when they were taken from the planet. Likewise, there are uh, advancements that they that they came up with where they leapt ahead on their own. The Polaroid camera. We established that they discovered the Polaroid camera sometime in that 400 years. And again, that's just another fun thing. What would they have created on their own? What would they have secretly created? And then what is the consequence of you know, this group of overlords watching them uh, suppressing these things and using, in particular, the Sari to destroy these items. An element that comes up here is that the Sari are, are a really blunt tool for going after this stuff. The Sari attack the Mender's uh, headquarters, but they also take out, the fire beings accidentally take out all the neighboring buildings. Uh, and and so we have this this sort of blowback from the from the locals uh, what did I do? What did I do? The, the poor woman who's running the barber shop is. I used a horsehair brush the other day. Was I not allowed to do that? What's going <laughs> on here? Uh, and again, these are really Star Trek ideas. Yeah, I think they they're really things where you can't get to them in a regular forty minute episode. Uh, you can't really get to them in most of the shorter novels because you're not on the planet enough. And what I wanted to do was. I, I wanted to do a, a strange new world book about a strange new world, one singular. I wanted to spend the whole time there so that I could actually chase some of these things down and you know, put some of these ideas in the book and let people think about them from there. Before we run out of time, I want to return to the character of Hemmer because you mentioned him at the very yes. beginning and he plays a really important role in the book, especially at the end. Basically, Hemmer saves the day and it's really because <laughs> of his unique abilities, but then also a reflection upon the fact that he doesn't have certain abilities that the rest of the crew has. So he's blind, right? He's an ANR uh, from the planet Andoria. And uh, he says at one point on page... 259 you see a schematic but i think in schematics and i just wanted to give give you a chance to reflect on you know what what it means to have diversity within your crew both in terms of expertise but then also in this kind of ableness well i wanted him at the very beginning i wanted him to just want nothing to do with this location that they're (laughs) at you know as as he says when physics stops working you might as well send me to my room (laughs) this is no good i i got nothing but he's able to sort of get there a little at a time. You know, obviously, they're creating things. That's another fun thing about this is that Enterprise creates mechanisms to uh, still communicate with our crew on the ground. It's just they make them from clockwork. They make them from things that are not going to fail when they get to the planet. They you know, come up with other mechanisms that the baffle will not stop. And uh, they get so good at it at one point that Pike just has to say, you got to stop because what you're sending down is technology. And we're still kind of trying not to actually, you know, affect everything here. The prime directive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 it's because uh, even though the prime directive doesn't apply to the Skagarans, it applies to everybody else here. Mm-hmm. So we've got that going on. 
but you know, we have we have uh, we have Hemmer talking about you know the Russian uh, lunar probe that used a literal you know I think it, it it blasted ice crystals into the into the sky to communicate the fact that it had uh, it had uh, reached its destination and you know that there were that there were other means of communicating you know he's not the one that discovers it but the 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 communication uh, trick that Pike comes up with utilizing something that is star trekky the uh, the the viridium viridium is the viridium patch that uh, spock puts on kirk's back in star trek 6 for some reason this particular you know this particular substance can be tracked across star systems because that's what we see in that movie yeah and i'm like okay well i can use that uh, <laughs> i had already used it i had already used it in uh, a book i did called die standing where i put it I put some of it in in the tooth of uh, of Finnegan. Right. Uh, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, maybe that maybe I can actually make this an on off thing where they can actually make a uh, use the viridium to uh, to to communicate. So he's coming up with ways to actually you know still try to communicate, but he realizes at one point, you know, I'm just going to have to get down there. I'm going to have to get on the ground if they're going to try to traverse this territory that they have to traverse even though the last thing he wants to do is to strap himself into a, a, a capsule for a deadfall. Uh, Cause that's what it's going to have to be uh, you know, a, a, a parachute landing. He realizes, you know, this is the only way that this is going to work. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do this. And, you know, at the same time, he understands that he, uh, you know, that this device that he comes up with, uh, which is a device that is mentioned in Enterprise, uh, the TV show. Hmm. The, the, the fact that the ANR used this kind of snow vehicle or ice vehicle uh, to cross uh, right. ice sheets. Yeah. And he mentions that, you know, this is something he's been thinking about for years. And what he's doing here is he's combining a lot of different things together. And clearly he's had time to think about it because he's had time up in space. And it's clear that he has an ability here that nobody else has. And then, uh, you know, the fact that he's got this other ability, because obviously we never explain how he sees. I think I call it telesthesia is the name for it, where he he, he sees by some, it is not echolocation. We know that because how is, how is he actually seeing uh, what's on screens? Right. He, he's got to have something else going on there. And they, we never say what it is, but I presume that, okay, once he actually gets down here and is able to to mess with the Ronger, uh, we did establish that some people and possibly species were better than others at manipulating the Rongers and you know, sort of creating the Zoom background for the conversations that they were having. Mm. And so, you know, I wanted him to sort of be the person who gets in there, looks under the hood and says, okay, yeah, this is a reactor. Uh, the plant's a reactor. Uh, uh, oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! It's a reactor. We're the, we're the fuel. We're the battery. We're we're and so um, I enjoyed being able to give him sort of this heroic you know, moment uh, in the story. And again, it is it is a uh, a big story. I wanted to do an epic, and I think that the maps uh, just sort of underscore that feeling of this mm-hmm. that this is a big place. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that our Star Trek uh, cast, that our crew is able to interact with it. And um, we even get the maritime piece with Spock. Uh, (laughs) And 
I just enjoy doing that. Um, the danger always is letting this thing get away from you. One of the major changes that happened as I did my outlines is the number of characters on the planet dropped. I think we started at like seven or eight and we got down to four but we were only going to tell you where three of them were. Right, right. I think that probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire book is when Spock shows up after a lot of absence, epically <laughs> on those ships to rescue Pike. Uh, that that was pretty awesome because I'd forgotten all about Spock, you know, because you you rightfully yeah, yeah. don't mention him, and that makes that moment all the more grand yeah. to have that that reintroduction. Well, this is this is a thing on the on the sort of logistical side of writing that I was having to deal with. I had this whole book set up on an Excel sheet <laughs> as I was doing it because I knew I had all these beats that I needed to have that Uhura would have and that Una would have and that Pike would have and Spock as well. And it became clear I couldn't have anybody else on the planet. And boy, this works so much better if somebody shows up with the cavalry, more or less. And it being Spock is perfect. And it being the Vulcan Navy is perfect. And yes. so, yes, it does turn into, I think, what what is a lot of people's favorite moment in the book. And it is mine. It's, it's, I've got a few. I've got that one. I, I think the ice cutter, uh, the reveal of that is a real fun moment. A lot of my writing, I try to write scenes I want to see. One of the things I'm proudest about is this is a book where nobody dies. And that is an extremely rare thing in a Star Trek novel. Uh, not uh, ding on Star Trek novels, but I mean, it's certainly a rare thing in one of my novels. I thought that Rogue <laughs> Elements, I thought Rogue Elements was my fun book because only two people died in it. And I'm like, well, I can, I can beat that. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, there are a lot of Star Trek episodes where nobody dies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's just not that common in the novels because you've got to kind of create a, uh, a sense of, of threat or menace and, well, here, you know, we start with something that looks very simple and we realize the fate of the universe is on it. One of my favorite things about this book is that all of the characters that we love on the show got to do the thing that they're really good at. You know, Hammer got to do some great engineering. Yeah. Uhura got to connect and communicate with this very different alien species and, and uh, you know, use her empathy in a very productive way. Pike was a, a leader, not on the bridge of the Enterprise but on this planet. And then Una Chin Riley gets to do a lot of diplomacy, right? With the, with the politicians yeah. on the world. So thank you once again, John, for putting together such an epic and fun novel. As fun as Rogue Elements was, I think I had even more fun reading this one. So you, you really accomplished that task. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot more there in this one in terms of it's just certainly on the science side. So, yeah, uh, I wanted to give you this chance to plug any current or upcoming projects that you want our listeners to know about. All right. Uh, well, High Country obviously is is out in uh, hardcover, audiobook, and ebook. We also have on the Star Trek side of things. Uh, there's a, a book I did uh, with Vernon Press, which is a an academic press. Uh, a couple of academicians that I uh, I'm friends with, Amy Sturgis uh, and Emily Strand, uh, have done a pair of books. Uh, one about Star Wars, one about Star Trek, and these are essays that tie into the series. I wrote an essay for each of them about uh, Star Trek and tie-in fiction and comics and canon and the development of the wider universe. And I did a, I, I did a mirror image of it for Star Wars for the book that's coming out for that uh, later this year. And it's kind of fun going through that and seeing what, you know, what ideas Star Trek got from Star Wars and vice versa in terms of, 
you know, cultivating the, you know, this, this, uh, this garden, so to speak, in keeping you with our theme. Uh, yeah, these, uh, the, the start, the Star Trek book is available at, at the Vernon Press website now. Yeah, these academic books are not cheap because they're intended to be used as texts. And then I have a number of projects that I'm, uh, I'm working on that I just can't say anything about. <laughs> awesome. Um, and finally, where can our listeners find you on the internet? My website where I have the links to my uh, event schedule, which is getting pretty busy, uh, and and also um, your notes about some of my previous books, uh, that is farawaypress.com. On Twitter and on post.news, I am JJM Faraway. And then on Facebook and Instagram, it's John Jackson Miller. Fantastic. All right. Well, John, thank you again so much for writing such an enjoyable Star Trek Strange New Worlds novel. Um, I really had a blast reading it and talking to you about the science and stories in it. So thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Uh, sure thing. Uh, live long and prosper. John Jackson Miller is always so fun to talk to because he's not only just full of energy, but with wild ideas and true Trek-like dedication to tossing nods to real-life science and technology. And I am forever grateful to him for being the first to involve me in the capacity as a scientific consultant for an official part of the Star Trek universe. Now, I know the novels are kind of soft canon compared to what we see on screen, but you've got to understand, I am a huge fan of the novels, having devoured over a hundred of those books throughout the years. So for me, appearing in the acknowledgments of the high country is just about as cool as seeing my name in the end credits of a Star Trek episode. It is a real dream come true. Next time on Strange New Worlds, we have a very special treat. Walter Koenig, that's right, Pavel Chekhov himself, is going to join us to reflect on the life of his good friend Nichelle Nichols, whom we sadly lost last year. Walter and I serve on the board of advisors for the newly formed Nichelle Nichols Foundation, which is dedicated to raising accessibility for minorities in science, technology, engineering, math, and the arts. You don't want to miss this conversation. Until then, stay safe, stay curious, and I'll see you out. If there's anything that uh, that I can help with in terms of you know answering more planetary science or astrobiology questions, just let me know. You know, I was I was gonna, and then a planet that I was working for something once again completely changed. So. <laughs> <laughs>